Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Today we're going to pick up right where we left off last week as we continue working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we finished up Matthew chapter 5 and talking about the commands of the kingdom, and now we're moving on into the next section which begins in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to talk about practicing your righteousness before men and why we really need to be careful about how we go about that. And I don't want to waste too much of our time here, and so let me just summarize a little bit of the context so that we ultimately know where we're at at this point in the sermon before we move on. Because I think one thing that we typically get wrong when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount is we almost treat every single section like its own separate thing. And this is probably one of those places where um, headings in your Bible actually does you a disservice because it makes you think that every single section is a new section. And yes, I do think that Jesus is moving on to a new thought, but the thoughts that he's sharing at the beginning of chapter 6 directly flow from the thoughts that he shared in Matthew chapter 5. And so I think that it's very important for us to understand the context of the grander sermon as a whole so we can really understand what Jesus is communicating in this portion, right? So it actually adds some depth there. And so just to kind of go back to what we've talked about so far in Matthew chapter 5, the whole sermon started out with the Beatitudes. And basically Jesus listed out the type of people that he's looking for in his kingdom and the type of people that he's going to produce if people listen to the commandments that he lays out in the rest of the sermon to follow, right? So this is the type of people he wants, this is the type of people that he's going to produce through this sermon and through his teachings. And then he talks about what exactly these people are going to look like in the world. They are going to be the lights of the world and the salt of the earth. People are going to look at them and they are going to be different, right? They're going to add flavor to the food of life. They are going to be light shining in the darkness. Everybody looks towards them and they're like, wow, those people are different. And you might ask Jesus, okay, well, how are they going to be different? And he says, well, let me tell you. And so what he does through the rest of chapter five is he starts laying out example after example after example of how his followers are going to be different than anybody else right? And he begins doing this by basically pointing out his relationship to the law. And he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So Jesus says, I'm not here to get rid of the law in any way whatsoever. I'm here to interpret it properly and to get my followers to apply it properly and to understand God's heart behind the law. And then he starts giving examples of how he interprets the law. And he says, okay, whenever the law said, don't commit murder, what really it was addressing was the hatred and the anger we feel in our hearts towards one another and how we really need to seek reconciliation rather than seeking vengeance. Whenever it said don't commit adultery, it wasn't simply talking about not sleeping with somebody who you're not married to. It was talking about the lust issue that leads to adultery, right? And so what Jesus was really highlighting in the back half of chapter five is engaging in some sort of redemptive righteousness that stands out from the crowd, right? When people look at his followers, they're supposed to see people who aren't merely concerned with following the letter of the law and who aren't merely concerned with doing things that are good and who aren't merely concerned with not doing things that are bad, but they're supposed to see people who are actively engaging in producing good in the world, right? Even producing good in bad situations. And Jesus' followers are supposed to be people who are helping accomplish in this world 
God's will on earth as it is in heaven, which is language we're going to see in Matthew chapter 6, right? And so that's what we ultimately need to understand about what Jesus was communicating in chapter 5, right? His followers are going to be different. They will be the light of the world. They will be the salt of the earth. People will look to them and they will say, wow, those people are different. But that all being said, if you're somebody who's listening to what Jesus is saying here, you might actually miss the point entirely because you might try to actually apply Jesus's commands with the express purpose of everybody seeing how different you are, right? That is what he's going to address in chapter six, because you might be hearing Jesus' commands and you're saying, okay, well, he's actually just calling us to a higher form of righteousness. And I want everybody to see my higher form of righteousness in order that everybody know how true, in order that everybody may truly know how righteous I am. And ultimately what Jesus is going to argue in chapter six is that if that is your mentality, you are missing the point entirely. Because the goal of true righteousness, which is what Jesus is trying to outline in the sermon, he's trying to demonstrate the standard of true righteousness. That is the central theme of the entire sermon, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. His whole goal is to demonstrate what righteousness is. And he's saying that the goal of true righteousness is not to bring praise to ourselves, but ultimately to bring praise to our Father who is in heaven. The goal of true righteousness, to word it a different way, is not to receive honor and praise from men to but to receive honor and praise from God and to direct other people to give honor and praise to God. That is exactly what Jesus is going to highlight here in chapter 6. If you're wanting to view it a different way, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus answered the question of what true righteousness looks like. And ultimately, it is redemptive in nature. True righteousness is not merely satisfied with doing good and not doing bad. True righteousness is actively participating in the righteousness of God who redeems creation, right? God is the ultimately righteous God who is actively, daily engaging with this sinful, broken world and producing righteousness through it, right? He is redeeming it and history is leading to this point where God will ultimately restore all things, right? And so if you are truly righteous, you are trying to conform yourself to God's image. And as he redeems this broken world, so we are supposed to seek ways to also redeem this broken world. That is what true righteousness looks like. And so that's what Jesus answered in chapter five. What does true righteousness looks like, look like? Now, as we go into chapter six, Jesus is going to answer a different question. Not what does true righteousness look like, but why is true righteousness performed, right? So Jesus is actually going to step a little bit deeper and he's actually going to address the heart of the person being righteous. In chapter five, he addressed the heart of God. What does God want from his people, right? That's the heart of God. Now he's going to examine our own hearts and ask us what our motives are for doing these things. Are we doing them because we want everybody to think we're righteous or are we doing them because we want to please God? And ultimately, the central question of the entire section we're going to cover today, just the first 18 verses of chapter six, is what God do you serve? And Jesus is going to give us a clear answer of what God we should serve because in these 18 verses, there's going to be one particular word that shows up 10 times, and that is the word father, right? We are called to serve our father who is in heaven, but as we're going to see, there are other people who are living externally righteous lives, but they aren't actually serving God the father. They might be doing the things that God the father said to do, but that's not who they're serving, and that's what Jesus is wanting to address in this section. Um, 
And uh, here, I'm going to click to the next slide. But before we actually walk through this, another thing that I want to do is I want to give us a caution, right? I want us to, and this is a caution I gave us in the previous sections as well. I don't want us to merely spiritualize everything. Because a lot of the times people will jump into the Sermon on the Mount and they will say that Jesus is not as much concerned with your external actions as he is with your internal heart. I do agree with that, right? He isn't as concerned with your external actions as he is with your internal heart. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about your external actions at all. Rather, you'll see that the instructions that Jesus gives here are physical, concrete commands that you can leave this video and go apply right here, right now, this very day. Right? So I don't want us to spiritualize everything here. I want us to understand that Jesus is pointing out that it is the internal that matters before the external can be done properly. Right? This is kind of like that whole issue that people have whenever they say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. I totally understand what people mean whenever they're saying that. They're saying it's not simply about following rules, it's about the relationship you have with God. I agree with that. But you can't say that Christianity isn't a religion because, yes, there are rules for us to follow. Yes, there are rules for us to apply. And ultimately, the word religion is just talking about people's philosophy for how you reconnect with God. So Christianity is ultimately a religion. And yes, there are rules to apply. And yes, what you do does matter. But it is a religion that is preceded by a relationship. And that's what Jesus is going to argue for here. So he's not merely spiritualizing everything. He's not saying what you physically do does not matter. He's saying, no, what you physically do only matters if it is preceded by a heart of devotion to God. And if it's not preceded by a heart of devotion to God, then ultimately the physical things you do, even if they are righteous in appearance, are actually testifying against you because you're doing this for duplicitous motives. And so that's ultimately what we just need to be aware of as we go into the text. That being said, there's all my context. There's my spiel. Let's actually let the Gospel of Matthew talk. And this is what Jesus says. Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So basically, he's laying the groundwork directly flowing from Matthew chapter 5, right? So the way that Matthew chapter 5 ended is he said, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? So he says, if you thought that the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes was enough, you need to step your game up because they aren't doing enough, right? It's not enough to simply not commit adultery. You have to address the lust issue. It's not enough to simply... Um, seek justice by taking eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No, you need to seek a redemptive form of justice where you take upon your the person who's afflicted you, you have to take their punishment upon yourself, right? It's not enough to simply love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You must also love your enemy, right? You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. As God loves us who are his enemies, so too we should love our enemies, right? So he's saying, step your game up. And this might lead people to think, okay, well, I just need to be a better person. I just need to go do more good things. And this is where Jesus gives a caution. He says, beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. One thing that Jesus does not say here is he does not say, do not do righteous things before men, right? He is not telling, he's not giving a prohibition. He's giving a caution, Right? He is not saying that you should not do righteous things in front of people. No, you, you should, obviously. Right, He's not saying be righteous in private and wicked in public. He's not saying that in any way whatsoever. 
Rather, he's giving a caution that addresses the motives. He says, when you are doing righteous things before people, you need to ask why you're doing them. Are you doing them to please God or are you doing them to be noticed by the people you're doing these actions in front of? That is the question. Why is it that you're not committing adultery? Why is it that you're seeking to get rid of lust? Are you doing it because you want everybody to know how righteous you are and you want to be able to say, oh, I've never lusted in my life? Or is it simply because you want to please God and because that is what God in heaven has commanded, right? Why are you doing it? Are you not committing adultery purely because you don't want to have that stain on your record in front of everybody else? Or are you doing it because you love your wife and because God has called you to do this, right? Why are you not committing murder? Is it because you don't want to go to jail? Is it because you live in the fear of men? Or is it because God has commanded it and God in heaven has given life sanctity and value and therefore you want to respect God by engaging in what he has commanded, right? That is ultimately what Jesus is commanding here. He's not prohibiting righteous actions in front of people. He is simply telling you that whenever you do righteous things in front of other people, you need to be cautious and you have to be checking your own heart and you have to ask yourself why you're doing it, right? Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So if you go about doing a righteous action, but you're doing it to please man, what he's going to argue is that you've received your reward. And so he's not saying you shouldn't go do it. He's just saying, if you're wanting a reward in heaven, make sure that you're doing these things for the right reasons. And what he's going to do through the rest of this section, verses 2 through 18, is he's going to list one example after another where you can actually demonstrate this. Just like he did in chapter five, where he said, you have heard that it said this, but I say to you this, you have heard that it said this, but I say to you this. So too, in chapter six right here, he's just going to list one example after another, and he's going to basically contrast how the scribes and the Pharisees act with how he expects his followers to act. And so here's the first example. Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Um, ultimately, what we're going to see is that Jesus does show a little bit of humor in what he says here, um, especially in verse 3. There's definitely a humorous element to that, that which we'll address. Um, but right here in verses 2 through 4, we see the structure of how basically the rest of the section is going to go. He's going to say, all right, so... In such and such case, whenever you do this thing, there's a way that the scribes and the Pharisees go and do this thing, and he calls these people hypocrites, and he's going to constantly call them hypocrites. And this isn't just the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Other people do this as well, right? Just other people in culture at large will do this. Even non-religious people will do things like this. But we've seen earlier in chapter 5 that he has the scribes and Pharisees particularly in mind whenever he's calling out insufficient forms of righteousness. And I think it makes sense that he has them in mind because they were viewed as the righteous of the righteous. And he's going to point out that even the righteous of the righteous are hypocritical at times. So he's going to say, whenever you go out and do such a thing, don't do it like these hypocrites who do it for this one reason. Rather, well, actually, so structure is when you go do this thing, don't do it like these people because these people have already received a reward on earth. Instead, when you go do such and such a thing, do it like this because then if you do it like this, then you'll receive a reward from your father who is in heaven, right? So there's a clear structure to this and this is how he's going to do it every single time. In this case, it's the example of giving money to the poor, 
right? Uh, he does not say, don't give money to the poor. He does not prohibit that at all. No, he says you should give money to the poor, and he expects his followers to do that, right? He does not say, therefore, if you give money to the poor. He says, therefore, when you give to the poor. Don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men. I don't know if people were literally walking through the streets blowing trumpets, but once again, Jesus is using humor to send a message, right? Because they don't have to sound physical trumpets to metaphorically sound trumpets. The idea is that these people are making their charity well known. They're going around and they're like, oh man, I would pay for your meal right now, but I already gave so much money to the poor right? They can't help but let people know about their righteous activities, right? And this is what the scribes and the Pharisees would have done, right? They would have let people know how much money they give in alms to the poor every week, every month, right? So they're doing a good and holy thing, but they're not doing it for good and holy reasons. They're not doing it simply to take care of their poor, and they're not simply doing it to honor their Father who is in heaven. They're doing it so that everybody knows how good and righteous they are. And therefore, Jesus calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite just means actor, right? It is a person who is duplicitous by nature, right? Externally, they're righteous, and externally, they're giving, and externally, they're selfless, but internally, they're actually wicked, and they're taking, and they're not selfless. They're selfish, right? They're proud, right? That is the hypocrisy of doing things like this, because externally, you're putting on an act, right? You're making everybody think that you are a giving and care, uh, you're a caring person who is selflessly giving of things for other people. But this person really has the goals of an actor in mind. They will act a certain way in order to receive a certain payment. They act like they are charitable, but the payment they receive is the righteous um, admiration of everybody else, right? And so they give a little bit of their money in exchange for the appreciation of everybody, right? For the exaltation of men. That is what they are doing. And so they are actually duplicitous in nature. And it looks like they're giving money to the poor, but really they're using the poor for their own personal advantage. And they're actually taking advantage of the poor person. And this is actually very messed up. And so he says, these people are receiving glory from men. And truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, right? That is all the reward they're going to get. And notice that what Jesus is not saying, I we have to clarify this because people often misunderstand this. He is not saying that it is bad for people to think highly of you. He is not saying that. He is simply saying that if you are doing good things in order for people to think highly of you, then that's bad, right? If you're simply doing a good thing and as a result, people think highly of you, that's fine, right? That's actually what we want to be, right? We want to be the light of the earth and the salt. We want to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, right? But we shouldn't simply go about doing things so that everybody can see us as the light. No, we should simply be the light and people should appreciate us depending on whether or not they value light or value darkness. If people want to value darkness, then we don't want them to like us, right? Rather, we want to be the light and if people are drawn to the light, so be it. If people are drawn to the darkness, so be it. We should not simply be going out living in such a way as to draw attention to ourselves. That's what he's highlighting here. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Obviously, this is just supposed to be a joke, right? This is not physically possible. Your left hand does not have a brain. Your left hand cannot know anything. The idea is that if it were possible to keep your charity even from yourself, do it, right? He's saying, if anything, do your righteousness in secret, 
right? You shouldn't be doing these things in a way where you think that you need to draw attention to yourself because if you constantly feel the need to draw attention to yourself for your righteous actions, you're probably not doing it for good reasons. You're probably doing it because you want people to think you're righteous. Rather, if it were possible, if there were some way, hypothetically speaking, if your left hand had a brain and it was able to know what your right hand was doing, keep it a secret, right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Keep it a secret at all possible. Even if you keep it a secret from yourself, don't even allow yourself to know how charitable you are, much less everybody else. That's what Jesus is suggesting. Because if you can do this, right? If you can keep your righteousness a secret, and he's not saying you have to go out of your way to make it a secret. He's simply saying, don't seek to make it public. Don't go out of your way to make it public. If it comes out, cool, that's fine. It's whatever. But if possible, insofar as you are putting an effort, don't make it public, right? If you can get away with doing it in private, do it so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, right? Uh, this is something that would counter... Uh, basically every human inclination, right? We want to be praised by men and we want to be praised by God. And many times people will do these huge religious activities and actions because they think that in doing this big public statement, God will see them and he will honor them. But what Jesus is highlighting is you need to correct your theology because the God who sees in public, he also sees in private. And so you don't need to do a big public action in order to impress him. Right? You don't need to go and lead a massive revival of 20 million people to impress God. He sees you in that private conversation with just that one person sitting by the campfire. Right, He sees that. And if you're out there trying to impress him, he's not going to be impressed. Right, Honestly, you can think about this in terms of relationships. I remember like, you know, back in high school, or nowadays I'm a I'm a Bible teacher at a high school, right? And I love seeing this, right? Whenever you see the guys who are going out of their way to impress the girls. Because the guys who are going out of their ways to impress the girls, they're not impressing them, right? They're actually turning the girls away. The girls see that. They're like, oh, you're trying too hard. I'm going to look the other way. The guys that end up impressing the girls are the guys who are just being themselves, right? And for better or for worse, because sometimes girls don't value the right things. But for the godly girls who are valuing the really godly guys, these aren't the guys who are going out of their way to make everybody know how godly they are. These are simply the guys who are just being genuine, godly people, and the girls are drawn to them because it's who they are. That's what Jesus is highlighting, right? If you're going out of your way to impress people, don't think that God's going to be impressed. God's going to be impressed with a person who does the righteousness in secret. And so that's the example he gives in regards to giving to the poor. But then he moves on. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Once again, Jesus is not prohibiting standing on a street corner and praying. He's just simply saying, if you are standing on a street corner and praying, you have to realize you're in a very dangerous situation because most likely if you're standing on a street corner and praying, you're doing it for the praise of men. And so... That should be an exception, right? If you're going out of your way to stand there every time, you're probably not doing it for the right reasons. It's not like he's saying that every street corner is off limits. He's simply saying, be careful when you do that. Because when you're doing that, you're setting yourself up for doing righteousness 
for the wrong reasons. I remember an example of this whenever I was in college. Um, there was this Baptist student ministry over at AM and they would do this thing called pancake breakfast where they would go to the Northgate district, which is basically the party district of College Station where AM's at. And they would basically minister to people who were typically under the influence of alcohol. Uh, and I typically, I had my just different opinions about that ministry, like specifically that particular ministry, because I don't know how many fruitful conversations came from it, but I would participate in it mainly because uh, usually it was a lot of girls with the Baptist student ministry who were wanting to participate um, and they needed more guys to kind of just walk around with the girls just to make sure they were safe. And so I would be one of those guys who would just sign up and just like walk around with them just to like keep an eye on them. And I remember we were going about this and there was one thing where like, one of the girls suggested, you know what we should do? We should all just get together at one place in this like part, like, like in this party district <laughs> and we should stand there and we should just form a circle and we should just pray. Right. And I stepped in and I just cautioned them. I said, Hey, if you are wanting to pray because you genuinely think that prayer in that time would be the best thing to do. Cool. But ask yourself, why are you like, why do you need to stand in a circle and pray? Right? Is that something that we could easily do? Just step against the wall and just pray on your own or pray together. Why is it that you feel that we need to be gathered as a circle in front of everybody? Right? And the reason I was asking that is because God cares about our motives. Right? Are we praying because we want everybody to see that we are the devout Christians who are standing there as the holier than thou people? Or are we praying because God genuinely hears our words and he wants to hear from us and we genuinely want to speak with him? right? That's what Jesus is addressing right here. It's this exact issue. And I actually brought up these verses to them whenever I was talking about it, because I said, I have no problem with y'all praying and I will stand here and pray with y'all. I just want to make sure that we're not doing this in order to appear righteous, because if anything, that will actually send the wrong message to the people we're trying to minister to, because they're going to look at us and they're going to think that we are trying to show off our righteousness when really our goal should be to minister to them, right? And so I was trying to highlight the same thing Jesus is highlighting here. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because they love to stand and pray at the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by men, right? You would have the scribes and the Pharisees who would stand on the street corners and they would pray and they would bob their heads like this and they would be saying these very long, robust prayers, just crying out to God. And you know what? I bet that these people were faithful people who genuinely did care about God. Jesus isn't saying that these people were going to hell. He's simply saying that these people were failing to understand the righteousness demanded by God. And these people, even if they were praying to God, there was probably some little aspect within them that was hoping that people would see how devout they were. That's what Jesus is getting onto them about, right? He says, you don't need to make this super big prayer in the super public place in order to be heard by God. Those people will have received the reward whenever people walk by them and say, wow, they're amazing. Or, oh, wow. Those people are not amazing, right? Their reward is going to come from men because they chose to perform the righteous action in front of men, right? But you, his followers, he's talking to his followers, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He's saying, when you pray, who is it that you're praying to? Are you praying to God? Or are you praying to man, right? Who are you performing for? right? Are you trying to talk to God and send a message to God? Or are you trying to talk to men and send a message to men? We all know people like this, right? Whenever they pray a prayer at the end of Bible study and they start praying about very specific things and they start getting into a sermon where it seems like they're talking more to the people in the group than they are to God himself. Jesus is saying, don't do that. He's saying, if you're praying, make your prayer about talking to God. And don't make it a public spectacle. Don't make it a big show because then you're not actually being righteous. You are being 
self-righteous. You are not doing the right thing. You are trying to make people think that you're doing the right thing, and you are trying to look externally good before people. If you really want to look good before God, go find a private closet, fall on your knees, make it to where nobody can hear you, nobody can see you, and just pour your heart out before God. That will mean a million times more to God than standing on a street corner. Once again, is standing on a street corner like just by nature wrong? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that if God values one more than the other, it's the person praying in isolation because that person does not have any ulterior motives. They're not doing it to be seen by men. Even the most righteous and devout person seeing on a, standing on a street corner, they're aware of the fact that everybody's watching them, right? Uh, and you can even apply this beyond just prayer, right? Whenever you're in church and you're singing songs to God, why is it that you sing at volumes? Is it because like, you know, some people will sing very quietly because they're afraid of what people will think of their voice. Some people will sing very loudly because they want everybody to hear their voice. Both of those people, I would say, are in the wrong because both of these people are deciding how to worship God and how to conduct themselves in church based off of what they think other people will think. Whenever you sing songs to God in church, you should be singing to God regardless of what people think. And so if you're singing quietly, may it be because that's how you think you need to sing to God in that moment. And if you're singing loudly, may it be because that's how you think you need to sing to God in that moment, not because you're trying to impress the girl to your left or right, or not because you don't want to offend the person to your left or right. No, sing to God. When you worship God, make it about worshiping him. That's what Jesus is communicating here. Stop making it about yourself. Um, same thing, you could also apply this like clothing, the clothes that you wear to church, the clothes that you wear around. Why are you wearing those clothes? Do you wear certain clothes to church because you're trying to impress people or do you wear those clothes because you want to impress God, right? What is your motive behind this? That is what Jesus is getting at here. And you can apply it in so many more, more ways than just the examples he's listing. He's just listing some examples. So he lists prayer, and then he goes on to another thing about prayer. And he's actually going to give us an example of prayer, which is really cool. So he says, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Right? So he says, okay, here's the thing. There's a lot of Gentiles around there who they'll go around and they will just repeat like they'll repeat, they'll repeat the same words over and over and over again, basically just trying to earn the attention of God, right? And we have examples of this just from pagan literature where you just have Gentiles, like they would give out these prayers and they would just list thing after thing after thing. And they would pray to one God and another God and another God, just begging that some God out there would hear them. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. When you pray to God, there's only one God you have to pray to, and that's your father who is in heaven right? And you don't have to multiply your words. You can be simple. You can be direct. You don't have to just talk for three hours hoping that he'll hear you for five minutes. He says he hears every single word you say. So if you pray for three hours, let it be because you have three hours worth of things to say to God, not because you're just trying to repeat things ad nauseum so that he eventually gives you your request, right? Don't do that. Don't be like the Gentiles because they repeat things over and over and over again. They don't even know who they're talking to. They have to pray to a million gods. You know which God you're talking to. And so whenever you go into the closet, when you fall on your face, don't just engage in meaningless repetition, trying to draw attention to yourself or trying to just really impress God with your verbose, verbose language. He says, speak honestly, because guess what? Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the main goal 
whenever you pray is not to get God to know what you have to say, right? Because God already knows what you have to say. Whenever you pray, you're not giving God new information. You're just engaging in the relationship that he desires, right? That's the purpose of prayer. He hears what you're saying and he responds to what you say. But that's not because this stuff is new information to him. It's because you were humble enough and devoted enough to actually voice it to him, right? That's ultimately what Jesus is addressing right here. And then he's going to give us an example. And everything that we read in this prayer directly flows from what he has communicated so far in this sermon. He says, pray then in this way. And this is where we get the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then some manuscripts add this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's some powerful stuff. That is some very, very, very powerful stuff. So, like I said, a lot of times we read this prayer in isolation, and that's because it does occur in other places in isolation in the Gospels. But the way that Matthew frames this is that it directly flows from the previous statements in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think that's how Jesus probably originally framed it in the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, okay, I don't want you to do meaningless repetition. Instead, I want you to pray like this. And people have broken this down a million different ways. You can go look up exactly like the structure, you know, where it's like you're you're giving voice to how much you love God and you're talking about him first and you're thanking him for things. You're asking for his kingdom to arrive and you're waiting before you ask for your requests. You can look at that stuff to see that. I mainly want to highlight the context of the sermon as we walk through this. So first off, he says, our father who is in heaven. So who is he directing the prayer to? God in heaven, right? He's not like the Gentiles having to pray to Ares and Aphrodite and Hermes and all this stuff. He's not having to do that. We know who we're talking to. Our father who is in heaven. You don't have to multiply your words. This is what I'm talking to. I'm talking to the God of Israel, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Make your name holy. Set apart your name. This ties into exactly what he's been talking about when it comes to practicing your righteousness before men, right? You don't want to practice your righteousness so that everybody will just see you as holy. You practice your righteousness so that everybody will see your Father as holy, right? It's so that everybody will praise your father who is in heaven, right? That's why we engage in righteousness. People should see our light shining in the darkness and that light should not draw attention to ourselves, but it should draw attention to our father. And so whenever we pray to God, that's what we ask him to do. We don't say our father who is in heaven, hallowed be my name, right? We don't say, God, make me amazing in front of everybody. God, esteem me in front of everybody. That's not what we say. We say, God, esteem yourself in the eyes of everybody. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've already talked about how the whole gospel of Matthew is framed as Jesus being the arrived king. He is the Messiah that was long awaited. He is the Davidic king who has come to establish his kingdom. That's what we're praying for. Right here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus is basically laying out what he views the kingdom as looking like, right? He has talked about the commands of the kingdom, and now he's going to talk about the character and the culture of the kingdom and stuff like that. That's what we pray for. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. May your kingdom arrive and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? 
This is specifically what we should be engaging in. How is God's will done on earth as it is in heaven? We're not asking for some supernatural thing where God intervenes like he did in the Exodus. Rather, we're asking that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven through us, right? Whenever God co commanded, don't commit adultery, what was his will behind that? Well, it was for us to address the lust issue. Okay, God, well, help me bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven by addressing the lust in my own life. Whenever God said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, what was he really commanding? What was his will behind that? Well, ultimately, it was that we wouldn't always inflict the punishment on the person. We wouldn't seek vengeance as much as we did seek reconciliation. Okay, Lord, well, help me reconcile that. And rather than me forcing justice and forcing vengeance upon another person, let me recognize that vengeance belongs to you and let me sacrificially serve the person by taking their punishment upon myself as you took your pun or my punishment upon you, right? That is what we mean when we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, okay? So now we're asking God to give us what we daily need in life. Are we simply asking, God, I want food, so give me food? Well, no, this has to be read in light of the kingdom. God, give me my daily bread so that I can live another day to serve another day so that I can spread your kingdom another day, right? That's why we ask for daily bread. It's not simply, hey, God, give me what I need to get through the day. It's give me what I need to get through the day so that I can serve you more. All of this is in the context of who do you serve? Are you serving yourself? Or are you serving God? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the one place in the entire prayer where actions are demanded of the individual, right? Everything is directed towards God, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us. All of that is things for God to do. God is the one who brings his kingdom. God is the one who gives. God is the one who hallows his name. God is the one who forgives. God is the one who le doesn't lead us into temptation. God is the one who delivers us. One action is demanded of man in the entire prayer, and that is for us to forgive our debtors, right? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice what the person praying is asking of God. They are not saying, forgive us our debts in excess of how we've forgiven our debtors. They're saying, forgive us to the same degree as we have forgiven our debtors. And it also implies in the language that you have already forgiven them. This is a huge demand and Jesus is actually going to pick up on it in verses 14 and 15, right? So whenever you're praying this towards God, there's an underlying assumption that followers of Jesus will be a forgiving people who do not hold things over people and do not hold grudges and do not entertain bitterness to any degree whatsoever, right? And when you pray to God, you ask him to forgive you only insofar as you have forgiven others. So if you have committed a grievous sin and you want to ask God for forgiveness, Jesus is saying, don't ask for forgiveness from God unless you have already forgiven other people who have sinned against you. That might seem like an extreme degree and an extreme command, but it is. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. The whole Sermon on the Mount is filled with extreme commands. And we need to read this closely if we want to understand that. So we pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We can't say forgive us our debts as we plan on forgiving our debtors, right? No, we say, God, look at my track record. See how I have forgiven my debtors? The reason why is because I understand your heart. And in understanding your heart, I have applied it. And therefore, I ask for you to apply your heart to me, right? 
It's very foolish for us to say, hey, God, I know that you're a forgiving God, but will you forgive me even though I don't forgive other people? Well, no, because you just pray that you want God's kingdom to be done and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if you know that he's a forgiving God, then you better be engaging in forgiveness. And you better not ask him to forgive you unless you have also been willing to forgive others for sinning against you. Otherwise, you are a hypocrite and you are being just like the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Who will hold something over another person while also asking for forgiveness from God. That's hypocrisy. That's not true righteousness. True righteousness seeks redemption, right? Redemptive righteousness. So they say, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. So you pray that God will keep you and save you from succumbing to the desires of evil. And ultimately the desires of evil can even include a false sense of righteousness, right? And so you're praying that God will help you actually accomplish what you've asked for in this prayer. And basically the prayer itself is you asking God to give you the necessary grace to equip you to go about and live a life faithful to him and aligned with his kingdom. That is what you're praying here. And then some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Whether or not that actually belongs in there or not, I, I would lean towards not, but I do think it's a, a sweet statement that we should probably pray towards God anyways, uh, because ultimately it's aligned with the same heart that Matthew's communicating here. Yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. Everything has to be read in light of his coming kingdom, glory and power. And then Jesus he gives a brief commentary on this prayer, right? And this is how he's closing out the section on prayer. And the commentary is not on every single verse. It is specifically on the one demand asked of humans, right? The one thing that is ascribed to man in this prayer is the one thing Jesus comments on. And it's probably because everybody who's sitting there listening to him is shocked by the severity of the command, right? Which is what I tried to highlight. He basically just said, forgive us our debts, but we've also forgiven our debtors. And you can imagine that somebody raised their hand after that and said, well, well, God, well, Jesus, does that mean that if we want God's forgiveness, we have to forgive others? Because we've never lived that way, right? We ask for God's forgiveness all the time, but we also never forgive anybody, right? I mean, they're living in a culture right now where they recognize that they have sinned against God time and time again, and God has sent them into exile and brought them back. And so they recognize their need for God's forgiveness, but they also have this bitterness and animosity towards the Romans, right? Who are sinning against them. And so these are people who they would have been just as shocked as us at this strong command. And so somebody raises their hand, Jesus, are you saying that God is only going to forgive us insofar as we've forgiven others? And you know what Jesus says to that? Yes. He says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. I don't think we like teachings like this, do we? <laughs> uh, this is one of those places where we get really nervous and we start sweating and we're like, oh, that sounds really strong. And we try to water it down. And I'm not going to lie. I have heard plenty of sermons where people do try to water it down, but there's nothing in this that would suggest that Jesus wants us to water this teaching down. Rather, Jesus wants us to understand that he is heightening everything right? There are so many times in the Old Testament law where God talked about forgiveness, right? And he made it necessary that you forgave certain people of certain debts. And Jesus is highlighting 
that the reason why God highlighted that is because God has a heart of forgiveness and God loves forgiving even the most wicked, vile sinner if they simply will allow him to. So he says, you better be willing to do that if you want to belong to the kingdom of God. Because if you're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, but you're not willing to forgive another person, but you're willing to ask God for forgiveness, you're not actually a follower of God. You're a hypocrite who doesn't even understand the righteousness of God. And at this point, you could say, but you don't understand what the person did to me. Okay, well, just as a spoiler alert, this whole gospel is going to end with Jesus going to a cross to die for people who rejected him. And he's going to bear their sins and take them unto death. And he's going to pray for their forgiveness. And then he's going to resurrect so that those people who killed him might have an opportunity for new life. And so if you're going to respond to what Jesus is saying here, and you're going to say, Jesus, you just don't understand. This person really did something bad to me. I could never forgive them. Jesus would laugh and he would say, then you don't understand the gospel. And I'm not trying to downplay this. Believe me, I've had people do so many wrong things to me. And there are so many places where I want to be bitter, but Jesus' words do not allow that. And once again, I'm not, like, you can't interpret this to say, oh, are you saying that salvation isn't by grace through faith? No, salvation is by grace through faith. But the person who has faith in God will be a person who strives to replicate this. And once again, you're not going to be perfect at it. That's fine. Jesus does not expect you to be perfect. The whole point of the sermon is that you need a righteousness that comes from him, not from you. That's his whole point. But you can't water this down just because it makes you uncomfortable. People are going to do bad things to you in life, and it's going to be hard to forgive them. And Jesus says, get over it. Yes, it's hard, but you have to do it anyways. Let's move on to this last little part. Now, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Um, this is actually funny because I actually just talked to some people about this same passage just a few days ago um, because I had a friend who um, she was fasting and she was talking about fasting and I was like, oh, are you doing it for like just like health reasons or like spiritual reasons? And she responded and said, well, if it was spiritual reasons, I couldn't tell anybody. <laughs> And I thought that was kind of funny um, just because I think that might be kind of missing the point of what Jesus is saying here. Um, because if you take this, like uh, one danger that we face here is that we read the Sermon on the Mount and we try to apply it simply to the letter. And in doing that, we are actually guilty of the same exact thing that the Pharisees were doing with the law, right? They were failing to understand the heart behind what Jesus is saying. I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is that if you ever are fasting for spiritual reasons, you're not allowed to tell a living soul. He's not saying that. He's simply saying that you shouldn't draw attention to it. It's the same thing with all the other things, right? Don't do it to be noticed by them, right? It's not like one of those things where, okay, you're fasting for spiritual reasons and some people want to go out to eat and they're asking you why you're not eating and you have to come up with a lie. No, you just tell them, oh, I'm fasting today. But move on, move past it, right? Don't do it to be like, oh, sorry guys, I would eat with y'all, but I'm fasting today. That's what Jesus is warning against. He's saying, don't do these things in order to draw attention to yourself. 
if you're fasting, don't go around with a gloomy face moping around telling everybody, oh, I am so hungry because I'm fasting because I'm such a great person. I've fasted not once, not twice, but three times this week. In fact, I fasted for the last month and a half because I'm so holy and devoted to God. He's saying, don't do that. That is ridiculous. And that's, that's just laughable. Don't be like that person. Instead, when you fast, anoint your, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, right? Insofar as you are capable of concealing it, conceal it, right? Whenever you fast, don't go out of your way to look all tired and gaunt. Get ready like you would any other day. And if anything, go above and beyond. If there's a way to get away with fasting without anybody knowing, go for it. That doesn't mean to lie to them. It doesn't mean to go out of your way to conceal it because then you're simply following the letter of the law and you're not understanding the heart of what Jesus is saying, right? You have to look to the heart of it. He is saying, don't do it for the praise of men. Do it to honor God, right? There's no problem with seeking rewards, but see who you're seeking the reward from. Are you seeking it from men or seeking it from God? If you go around showing off how much you're fasting, You'll receive reward because everybody's going to be like, wow, that person's so amazing. Did you hear about Billy Bob? He fasted for 47 days. Okay, there's your reward. Everybody's super impressed by you. However, if you fast for a week and nobody notices because you have been loving them in the same way, and even though you're hangry, you're not allowing it to get the best of you, and you're still conducting yourself with the same joy and the same serving heart as you were before to where nobody even thought to ask you whether or not you're fasting, God will see that because he will see that you have denied yourself a basic human need, but you haven't denied people the love that you were also called to give them. And you were still being selfless and caring. And therefore, the only reason you were fasting was because you were serving him. That's what Jesus is highlighting here. And that's really ultimately what he is highlighting with all of these. And so just to bring this like kind of teaching to a close here, uh, I think that ultimately we can see through Jesus' teachings that his followers are supposed to differ from followers of what we can just call like a dead religion in five different ways. So whenever I'm talking about dead religion, I'm talking about religion that is simply action focused. Whenever people say it's not a religion, it's a relationship. This is the religion that people mean by that, right? Uh, the idea of dead religion, pharisaical religion, legalistic religion, the Gentile religion, paganistic religion. That's the religion that we're trying to counter and Jesus providing us a better way, right? And it differs in five primary ways, the first of which is theology, right? Uh, the way that it differs in theology is because our actions demonstrate which God we serve, right? Do we serve God as God or do we see, serve the world as God? If you look at the Pharisees and the scribes and stuff, by the way they're doing things, they're not serving God, they're serving the world. And they are longing for men to honor them. And they are longing to impress the world. And they are doing things to advance themselves in the world. And so they might call themselves servants of God, but really, if you looked at their motives and their hearts, they're not actually devoted to God, they're devoted to the world. And really, the idol that they've made in their hearts is actually themselves right? So they have made themselves into an idol and they actually worship their own selves. Secondly, uh, not only do they differ in theology, but they differ in motive, right? Our actions demonstrate who we seek honor from. Uh, if you're going around and you're making your face gaunt every time you fast, you're seeking honor from men, right? You are trying, you are only doing this. I'm not saying you're only doing it for this, but you have you might have split mind. You might be double-minded, right? You're doing this partially because you want people to be impressed with how righteous you are. You're seeking the honor of men. Uh, 
However, whenever you pray, if you go and you pray in secret and you lay down on your face in the darkness where nobody can hear you and nobody can see you and you just cry out to God, well, there's no questioning who you're seeking honor from and there's no questioning your motives there, right? If you are fasting for a whole week and not a single soul ever hears about it, there is no question about who you are serving there, right? The whole thing that Jesus is highlighting here is that whenever righteousness becomes a matter of public sight and public knowledge, all of a sudden there's a temptation that comes to make it about yourself. And that's why we pray, lead us not into temptation, right? God, if I am doing a righteous action that is in front of men, may I be controlled and may I do this for you right? You have to do righteous things, right? A pastor has to go preach a sermon, right? I am currently putting this ser- like this teaching out there on the internet for people to see. But before I even turn the video on today, I had to stop and I had to pray and I had to ask God, all right, God, <laughs> when I preach this, may I not be doing this to receive their praise, but may I be doing it to glorify you right? And even right now, I'm telling you about that prayer, which you might think contradicts the other thing. But no, I'm ultimately telling you about that prayer so you could understand how we should hopefully be trying to apply this, right? So we don't want to simply view Jesus's statements here as simply black and white rules um, to be followed by the letter. Because if we do that, we are failing to understand what he's really getting at. We're doing the same thing that the scribes and the Pharisees did with the law. What we need to do is that what we need to understand is that Jesus is highlighting the heart and he's addressing heart issues that needed that need to be responded to with the motivations of the heart. And so we differ in our theology because we worship God, not the world and not ourselves. And we differ in motive because we seek honor from God, not honor from men. But then thirdly, we also differ in our manner, right? Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they go about doing things because they want to make sure that everybody is watching, right? They are not going to pray on a street corner at the time whenever the street corners are empty. They're going to find the busiest time of day and they're going to go when everybody sees them. And that's when they're going to pray. That's when they're going to pray, right? Uh, A pastor who is really serving himself, he is going to preach his best sermon at the time whenever millions of people are watching. And whenever there's only like a dozen people, he's going to not give as much attention to that sermon, right? because ultimately he's living to impress people. Whereas really, whether you're preaching to one person or whether you're preaching to 3 million people, it's the same message, right? You should be preaching the same thing. You should treat it with the same level of respect because ultimately you're doing this for God and it should be an act of worship, right? And so we differ We differ in our manner than the scribes and the Pharisees and then the Gentiles and stuff because those people do things in order to be seen by men. Whereas whenever we do things, we should do things not caring whether anybody is watching, right? So the manner that you pray, it shouldn't be dictated by where you're at or who's there. It should be the same either way. The content of what you're saying, it should be the same either way. That is what Jesus is getting at here. So we differ in theology. We differ in motive. We differ in manner. And then we also differ in behavior, right? Um, The people who are like the scribes and the Pharisees, they are doing righteous things merely to check off boxes, right? God said, don't commit adultery, check. God said, don't commit murder, check. God said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, check. But that shouldn't be our heart behind it, and right? And that's why I'm saying um, we don't want to treat what Jesus is saying here like it's just a new law, right? Do we want to say, okay, I tried to work against lust today, check. All right, cool. I worked on loving my enemy today, check. We don't want to treat it like we're just checking off boxes. Rather, our whole 
behavior should be different. Rather than checking off boxes, our goal should be to seek the heart of God. Like King David in the Old Testament, we should be men and women after God's own heart, who are not simply trying to do good things because we want to be right before God, but we're trying to do God's word because we love God's word and because we love his commands. And like the psalmist in the law, in Psalm 119, we can say, I love the law and I have treasured it in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The reason I obey God is not simply because I want to be viewed as righteous before men or even just because I want to be viewed righteous before God. It's because I love God and I seek his heart and I want to emulate his righteousness in this world so that his kingdom can become, so that his kingdom can come and his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be the heart of the Christian. It is not simply checking off boxes. It is seeking the heart of God. And so we differ in theology. We differ in motive. We differ in manner. We differ in behavior. And then the fifth and final thing, and this is how we're going to close today is that we differ in the root cause of the righteousness. One righteousness is rooted in performance. The other righteousness is rooted in character, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, they did righteous things because they wanted to be seen by everybody. And in those instances, righteousness was not a matter of character. It was simply a matter of performance. They were putting on a show. Like an actor, they were being hypocrites, right? They were going out, they were acting, right? But they were not actually righteous internally. Internally, they were actually self-seeking and selfish individuals who were feeding their own pride by looking humble in the eyes of men, right? It was just a performance. On the other hand, truly righteous people, people who engage in the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness demanded by the kingdom, these people recognize that righteousness cannot just be a performance, it has to be a matter of character. People have defined character as who you are when nobody is looking. That is the righteousness that Jesus is demanding. It is a righteousness that is not simply displayed whenever you are out in public. It is a righteousness that is displayed when you're at home in private. It's not enough to simply not commit adultery on your wife. You have to contain that lust. And whenever you're at home in private, what type of websites are you looking up? Right? And we're all guilty of not being able to live up to the standard, but that is what Jesus is demanding right? He is the king sitting on this mountain, pronouncing his judgments and his commandments and his statutes and his edicts and his rules to the people of Israel, just as God once did from Mount Sinai. And no, these teachings are not easy. They're very hard, but this is what the king demands. And he says, if you want to be in my kingdom, you need to follow in my footsteps. And you do this by faith, ultimately, as we're going to see throughout this whole gospel. But that faith demands life change, and it demands that we are differing from the other people who belong to dead religion and our theology and our motives and our manners and our behaviors and down to the very root. Our righteousness cannot simply be an outward performance. It has to be a transformation in our inward character. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate. This has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.